Thanks for coming out. Well, good news and bad news. The good news is, tonight we finish the book of Philippians. The bad news is, tonight we finish the book of Philippians. And that means no more Bible study for a while. It's been a wonderful journey through this book, and I think I can speak for everyone who taught in saying that I hope you're all edified and encouraged and maybe even convicted a little by what we heard. We all agree that God's Word edifies and encourages, but sometimes that conviction is a little bit harder pill to swallow. But yet conviction may be what we need much of the time. And that's why God's Word regularly warns His people of the dangers of living in the world or claiming to be His with little to no visible evidence of it. In these final verses, Paul finishes up his letter with some edification and encouragement to the church. He's going to speak about the blessings he received from the Philippian church and about contentment. Because understanding what true contentment is and how we can have it and why it is so important, and it's actually one of the most challenging graces for the Christian to have also. We'll spend a good amount of time talking about that. We'll talk about what contentment is what it isn't, and perhaps even what discontentment is not. So let me read the verses, and then we'll dig in. It's chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There is a lot to be seen and understood in these verses. We know from other verses in this book that the Philippian church was faithful to Paul in his giving, in its giving, but for some reason they had to stop. But then they were able to start again. Paul never chides them or makes them feel bad for stopping, but only thanks them for reviving or renewing their giving. What a wonderful example we see here of a heart that rejoices in the giving, but not in the taking away. Do we see the parallel here? Pastor Kyle spoke about this on Sunday, about how Peter denied Jesus, and Jesus never chided him or made him feel bad for his sin, and he never will for us either. There may be discipline mixed in with it, but it is always grace upon grace upon grace for the believer. I think there might be something else for us to see here too. It might be safe to say that whatever Paul was receiving from them, 
was above their normal giving to their own church in Philippi. So for us, if there ever comes a time when we have to take a short pause in our giving to a missionary or some other organization that we support outside of the church, due to a financial burden or any other legitimate reason, we should rest content. This is why in verse 10, Paul said he rejoiced that they were concerned for him, even if they didn't have the opportunity to show it. Paul is comforting them by saying that the blessing doesn't only come in the actual giving, but also comes in a heart that desires to give. Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians 8 when he says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what the person has, not according to what he does not have. This is also why Paul in his response never refused their gift, but encouraged and thanked them all the more. I think there's something here for us also. Have you ever had someone try to give you something or do something for you and it felt uneasy? Or you continually insisted, no, 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 that's not necessary. It can be hard to receive something from somebody because we can look at it as charity. And we can sometimes think, I don't want anyone to think that I'm in need. Plain and simple, that's just pride, especially if we are in need. We can actually deny someone a blessing that they're trying to give us when we do that. And I think that might be part of the message that Paul is sending us, that it is okay to receive. It is possible that more than just money was given to Paul, but his willingness to receive any money he was given was not to build up his own bank account, as he was in prison. So one question that comes to mind is, at least to me, what did he need the money for? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we have to be careful here. So this is just my speculation, but surely there were other people, prisoners in jail with him. And one thing we know about Paul, which we read in the book of Galatians, when he began his ministry, the other apostles said, make sure that you remember the poor. His response was, that's the very thing that I am eager to do. Paul lived his life as a funnel for all God sent him whether it was the glory of the gospel or contributing to the needs of fellow believers. He wanted nothing for himself, and whatever came in went out. His desire was never to build up his own kingdom because he lived for a different kingdom. And because of that, he believed the promises of God. He knew that God would supply all he needed for that work. Perhaps then... He funneled some of this money to fellow prisoners that they could give to their families also. If so, imagine how shocking it would have been to other prisoners to have a fellow inmate give them money to help them or their families out. That would be unheard of. But by doing so, he would not only be proclaiming the message of the gospel with words, but indeed or action. This is exactly what we read in 1 John 3:18. Let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed or action and truth. Think about this comparison. When we read in the Bible the miracles of God, we see that the miracles always gave validity or confirmation to his word. As one commentator said, miracles were consistently used to bring God's word 
to the heart of those who witnessed the miracles. Miracles never changed the heart of any person, but were a confirmation of God's word. If Paul had been given financial relief to some of his fellow prisoners, although that would have not been a miracle, it would confirm by action the words that came out of Paul's mouth. The same holds true for us today. We need to not only speak the truth of who Jesus is, but must also act when we are able. James's famous verse about faith and works echoes this perfectly. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that speaking the gospel without doing anything doesn't matter because we know the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So just giving someone a coat or a hot meal can't do anything for them, eternally speaking. But our words do have power when they are accompanied by action. That's also why for Paul, a man whose cries, I count everything as loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That meant not only all Paul was, but all he had. Paul wants us to see this surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, and this is why in verse 10 he ties all the blessings of giving and receiving from the Philippians, not just to them as individuals, but to the Lord. Yes, we can and should thank people for their giving, but God must be rejoiced in first and foremost as he is the one who first made it possible. And is again why Paul said, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. In all Paul is saying, he is actually continuing to build up their faith and wanting them to see the blessings that come from giving by encouraging them to continue to give. He didn't need the money. That's why we read in verse 17 to 18, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Again, do we see all as Paul is trying to convey here? He's not just giving them words of thanks, but is giving further encouragement to continue giving generously. His concern is always for the heart of God's people, and he knows that blessings come when God's people are faithful. I think he knows that money is one of the hardest areas to do this in. Why? Well, we can all be faithful when it comes to serving or praying. The most that costs us is a little bit of time and maybe some gas money. But giving sacrificially, giving 10% to the church, giving to missionaries, giving to the poor, when we look at our monthly bills and 
see what comes in and what goes out, it just doesn't seem possible at times. It takes a huge redirection of our thought process and how we see or where we see all that we have comes from. One of the difficulties, though, is that foregoing pleasures, new things, or the latest iPhone are just a few of the many luxuries that we say we cannot do without. I think Paul would disagree with that. And that's why we need the Lord's help in any of these areas. When my wife and I first came to faith here at Green Tree 18 years or so ago, uh, we heard teaching on giving, and they handed out a little book called The Treasure, uh, Treasure Principle. A little tiny book, about a 10-minute read. I said, okay, we'll take it. And the whole gist of the book is pay God first. That's how you do it, pay God first. Yeah, okay. So we went home. <laughs> we looked at our bills, new believers. We would like to give 1% if we could, Lord. How is this going to happen? Pay God first. What did God do? He made us reflect and look at our lives. Okay, we didn't go cold turkey on everything. But over time, right, this doesn't happen overnight, over time, we looked at everything. Okay, what about this? Do we, do we need this to the extent that we have it here? Let's bring it down. How about this? Uh, you know, we can do without that. We don't need that. Little by little, over time, God redirected our thought process as he worked on our hearts, and we were able to do it. It's funny, about a week ago when I was putting the finishing touches here, the thought came to me, the people in Israel wandering through the desert, the wilderness, complaining to Moses, we're dying of thirst out here. If you don't do something, we're going to die. So what does that have to do with this? Well, what did God tell him? Strike the rock and the water will gush out. And I think sometimes for us, even as believers, we can still have hardness of heart towards things. And if we really want those blessings to pour out of us, we need to ask God to strike our hearts. God, do it in a way that's graceful because he will. But show me, God, how I should live. As I say regularly when I teach about our aim, our goal, and our trajectory in growing in holiness and strong faith, it's the same for our giving. Not burdening ourselves with, I gotta be here today, right? But setting our aim, our goal, and our trajectory on a path, and then with the Lord's help, getting there over time. This is why Paul wants us to know here in context to giving that the blessings come from the giving. And when we are faithful, God is pleased, and our giving is, as verse 18 says, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The Bible uses this phrase, pleasing aroma, similar, similar to what Paul says numbers of times. We just heard Dan a couple weeks ago uh, in Genesis where Noah built the altar and made the sacrifice, and God said it was a pleasing aroma. This language, though, is not just limited to what we do. It is also targeted to all of God's children personally. We read in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are the aroma of Christ to God. Now, of course, when we sin, we may taint that aroma a little bit, but nonetheless, it always holds true. We were once a noxious odor to God, but now in Christ, we are a pleasing aroma because there has been a transformation of our lives. So you might think of two rocks or stones, one in the middle of a flowing stream of water, the kind you walk through the stream, you pick it up, it's so nice, so shiny, I'm going to take that rock home, it's so nice. 
And then there's another rock sitting out of the water that's on the bank of the stream. Over time, that rock on the bank gets covered with dirt and moss and everything else and really stops resembling a rock. The longer it sits, the less it will resemble that rock. But throw that rock into the stream, and over time, it will turn into a nicely polished rock. But it takes time. As the water continues to flow over day after day, month after month, it will clean that rock and reveal its true beauty. This is what God's word does to us as we throw ourselves into it. It transforms us. It washes us clean. We see this in Ephesians 5 where the reference is to being cleansed by the washing of the water with the word. This, of course, relates not only to our desire to give, but also our daily walk, our righteousness, and growth in holiness. Through this washing of the word, God is sanctifying us and revealing the true beauty that is inside of us as his children. And that is not just for our sake, because when we live the way God says we can, he is also glorified. One more thing about that rock on the bank. If you take that rock and you put it only partly in the water, what will happen? It may start to get cleaned up, but it is an oh-so-slow process because the water at the edge is really just lapping up on it. And even if it does get partly cleaned up, there will always be a part of it that isn't. No one would pick up that rock and say, I want to take this rock home. No, that dirty rock is best cleaned and smoothly polished as it is thrown into the middle of the stream where the current that runs over it is the deepest, the strongest, and never stops. Shouldn't that be where we want to throw ourselves? Into the current of strong faith by the washing of the word. That's where Paul lived because he knew that's where the greatest blessings are. Even if that stream felt like a flood at times. Paul also knew the life of a believer wasn't easy. That's important because easy Christianity doesn't save anyone. There are masses of professing believers who fall into that category because they have been indoctrinated into thinking that Christianity is easy. A simple profession of faith doesn't mean anything if our lives aren't changed and then sought to be lived out according to God's word. Thankfully, God is merciful, and that is why he speaks to us and warns us of these things. As I said in the beginning, God's word gives us encouragement, edification, and at times conviction. As I move into talking a little bit more about contentment, I'm going to throw out four questions that pertain to what has been covered, and the last one will be kind of like a segue into contentment. It would probably come under the heading of conviction, you might think when you hear these, but it should be seen as encouragement because it really is how God wants us to live, not only in our daily walk, but also in our giving. Now, I didn't make up these questions, so don't shoot the messenger. They came from Sinclair Ferguson in his book on Philippians, right about this time where I was studying. If you don't know who he is, he's a professor of systematic theology, well-known and very respected in Reformed Christian circles for his teaching and writing. So Sinclair asks this. Now, our answers are kind of geared more towards the church and the elders, but it also applies horizontally to us. One, am I really concerned for the welfare of the Lord's servants? If they or the church has a need, do I simply shrug my shoulders and say, well, I guess you got into the wrong business? Or do I say, what must or can I do 
to help. Two, do I regard my Christian stewardship, particularly but not exclusively, meaning my money, as a partnership? Or do I just see it as an investment with no return? Three, do I really want to live, give, pray, and share with others in such a way that the glory will be seen to come to God by the way his people love one another, support other ministries, and depend on the Lord's provision so that it becomes clear that the power and the glory are his and not ours? And fourth, segue into contentment, do I really believe that God will supply what I need if I give sacrificially? Or do I always give in such a way that sacrifice will be avoided? And do I see that generous giving is not necessarily always sacrifice, meaning I can give generously but not sacrificially? We see this story with Jesus when he's watching the people put the offering in. Rich man put a lot in out of his abundance. The woman was a one or two coins, and he said she gave the better. These are definitely some questions we should ponder. And as I said, this last question leads us into the topic of contentment, uh, which also includes one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture. We'll get to that in a second. In verse 11 to 14, Paul speaks of the contentment he has, how he was forged in the fire of affliction to get him there. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> and how only through the Lord is true contentment possible. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. First, let me dispel this most abused verse of I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is a danger when we take a verse out of context and misapply it somewhere else. This has certainly been the case with this verse. We must read all the verses in context of the surrounding verses and then seek to apply them properly. It is true that many passages have application outside of their original context, but we still need to be careful. Many sports teams and athletes have applied this I can do all things as a sort of stirring one another up for the big game. We're going to win the game because we can do all things through him who strengthens me. The simple truth is we cannot do all things as it pertains to the things of the world, our goals, or our desires. We are limited in what we can do. And so we should be careful when we tell our loved ones, our kids, or anybody else, you can do anything you want because that is not entirely true. If an ordinary athlete thinks they can win Olympic gold, solely because they recite, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, they will probably be sadly disappointed. The context Paul is using this verse in is faithfulness and the contentment he has because of the work the Lord did in his life. But his contentment did not come easily, and neither will ours. So before we dig any deeper, I thought I would define what I would say contentment is. There are lots of definitions. I would say that biblical contentment is trusting and resting in God, his promises, and his plan, not only for what happens in his creation, but also for our individual lives in whatever situation the world or we find ourselves in. It is rooted in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as Lord and King in that he controls all things at all times and works all things in our lives for our good. 
Paul saying, I can do all things because he wants us to know that we can do all spiritual things through Christ who strengthens us. We can face sin, temptation, and all the world throws at us faithfully, but only through Christ. If we try to face it on our own, we may succeed for a time, but in the end, we will fail because we don't have the strength to do that, even if we could, because I think we can say that there are believers, unbelievers in the world who look pretty strong until the end. Even if we could, we would be robbing God of the glory, and that can never be good. So what contentment is not, what it is not, is saying, you know what, my life is a mess, I hate my job, all my relationships stink, and my health isn't so good. But okay, sirrah, sirrah, I guess this is just where God wants me, so I'm not going to do anything to change my life. No, that would be crazy, right? If we fell into a deep hole and didn't try to dig our way out of it, that would be crazy. We wouldn't say, I'm stuck here the rest of my life. All those situations, what contentment would be, Lord, I'm asking you for your help. Help me to get out of this mess or whatever it is. Let me rest content along the way. Give me the wisdom, strength, and the wherewithal to seek change because I know this is not the place you want me. And then we take action. It might mean going back to school to learn a skill or get a degree. It might mean apologizing and asking forgiveness to someone to repair a relationship. It might mean exercising, cutting out bad habits, and taking a long, hard look at our lives from a biblical perspective and see if there's any changes we need to make. That might even include asking the question, have I neglected God? How have I? How about his church? How about his people? Similarly, discontentment is not simply saying, oh, I just wish I had a better job, better health, better relationships. Because there's nothing wrong with improving ourselves or our situations. It's only when we start to idolize those things and they consume us because we want more, more, more that discontentment can arise. So how does this grace of, dis of contentment come? Sadly, it comes mostly through trials, hardships, and afflictions but it doesn't have to. I think if most Christians were asked, though, they would say it does. It certainly did with Paul, for he tells us he had to learn how to be content. It was through being brought low and when things were good, when he had plenty or faced hunger, abundance, and need. He was also given a physical ailment, right? His proverbial thorn in the flesh. And he asked for it to be removed. But God said, no, my grace is enough. So he had to grow to accept it and be content that it wasn't going away. And that may be the case for some of us. Right? If anyone has a physical ailment, we should pray, God, please take this away. But if not, we should realize that it is by God's hand and then by his grace, seek to rest content in it. All of these circumstances and many more were real to Paul and they are real to us. But Paul lived outside of his circumstances. His joy and contentment and identity were never found in his circumstances, but were always found in Jesus. This wasn't always the case, for he once lived a proud and self-sufficient life. We heard a couple of weeks ago from chapter 3 where Paul said he had more reason to be content, confident than anyone, than anyone, because he was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You can almost see him patting himself on the back. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then he came to true faith. It was only then that he was able to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul saw that he, what he once clung to so tightly was now nothing. Reputation, status, prominence, they were all rubbish now. Only Jesus matters now, he's saying. True contentment can never come in the former because the flesh will never be completely satisfied. Remember Nelson Rockefeller, the famous quote that's attributed to him? One, one time the richest man in the world, I think. Nelson, how much money is enough? Who's got the answer? Just a little bit more. That's right. True contentment is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not listed in Galatians 5, but it is a fruit of the Spirit. And so if our identity is in anything other than Jesus, we will continually battle with joy and contentment. Many of you know that I was a New Jersey State Trooper for 25 years. I loved that job until the day I retired. Actually, I still love it once a month when that check comes. (laughs) Every time I read this, I still laugh at that. (laughs) I didn't become a believer until about halfway through my career. Before I did, my identity was as a trooper, that and a rabid Eagles fan. And yes, I admit to my shame that I was one of those guys that sat up in the 700 level of Veterans Stadium and in the upper level at the link after it was built and acted in all kinds of ungodly manner for years. But as God worked on my heart, that changed dramatically. And that's a good thing, because the day I retired, I went from Lieutenant Pearson, a man who had once been in charge of a state police station with over 30 troopers under his authority, to Mr. Pearson, a man with no power and authority. Now, for me, that was pretty easy because then my identity was in Christ. But sadly for many, it is not. And that, regardless of the occupation, can throw a person into a tailspin. And that goes back to why praying for contentment should be a regular prayer of ours. It doesn't come easily, as we know, because we live in a world that continually pelts us with more is better. Look out for number one. It's all about you. You work hard, so you deserve what they have. Or that we're somehow not who we should be if we don't have lots of things dress and live the way the world does, or have all the latest gizmos and toys. One interesting thing Paul does say, I don't know if you picked that up here, is that part of his education in contentment came from having plenty. He says in verse 12, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. So secret here means instruction in the Greek, instruction into the mysteries of something. It's not the same Greek word for secret Paul uses elsewhere in his letters. There it's something hidden that cannot be found out. Here it is something we can find out, but it takes time and searching. But why would Paul say there is a secret in facing plenty? Well, if his contentment was found in his circumstances, then it would seem to make sense that having much would have increased his contentment and joy. Now, as an aside... That doesn't mean we won't have a little sigh of relief, right, or be a little more content if we have a little more money in the bank. But those things can't be the end all. So how could Paul say that facing plenty helped him learn the secret of contentment? 
He knew that money, wealth, and notoriety are fleeting. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So he knew if all his contentment was bound up in his things, if they were to be taken away, he would be crushed. He also knew the danger and the heart's desire for more, more, more. Remember, he was the one who wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, which is a trap, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know what comes right before those two verses? Paul says, but godliness and contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. What's the joke? You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? Because you can't take it with you. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I think Paul knew that there could be a greater danger to our faith from wealth rather than having less. His words on the love of money also echo the words of the writer of Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And Jesus says in Luke 12, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now I also want to be clear that just because we have things doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't be saddened by the loss of them. Right? If we lose our house in a fire, no one would rejoice and say, wasn't that great. No, we can be saddened by that. Of course we should be saddened by that or any loss. We just need to have the proper context for those feelings. Sometimes God will even take away something from us because he wants to wean us from the world. That's why it's no coincidence that many times the people with the least amount of stuff have the greatest faith. Because that's all they have is faith. God sees our hearts and God's main desire is for the state of our hearts not our earthly possessions. Deuteronomy 7, God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. For the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That is a reciprocal statement. He also wants us to say that about him being our greatest possession. There's also another reason why Paul has great contentment and a full understanding of this is I think absolutely necessary if we want to have great contentment is an understanding of the sovereignty and providence, or you might say the rule or care and guidance of God over all things at all times. I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes because I believe they're foundational truths, not only to having strong faith, but trust and contentment. It's important because if we think about this for our own lives, if something seems chaotic and out of control, we can tend to worry or wonder how it's all going to work out. Financial hardship, a bad doctor's report, job loss, a car that just keeps breaking down, or a loved one who is on a destructive path. It is not so easy to be content when these things touch our lives, as usually we're more at ease when things are under control. Or if we look at the world today, The world seems chaotic and out of control. 
Now, from a human perspective, it is. But from a God standpoint, it is not. Everything is going exactly the way God wants it to. If he is not in complete and absolute control on all that is going on, then that means he's not in control over some things. And that would mean that those things would be out of God's control. And that cannot be, or he would not be God. This is why it's important to understand that God wills, ordains, and decrees all things that ever did, do, and will happen. We can nod our heads in assent at that, right? Oh, yes, but then not be so assured when the bad things happen. And yes, it includes those things also. What we would call the worst tragedies or the best things in life, God wills, decrees, and ordains them all. Now, I admit that the more we come to an understanding of the sovereignty of God, the harder it can be because it then opens up the door to a lot of questions, especially when it comes to evil. This is important to understand, too. There is no evil in the world, no demonic forces, not even Satan himself, who run rampant and freely and without being under God's direction and rule. Now, to be clear, God doesn't do evil, but he does rule over it. The Bible tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, meaning Satan, that is still under the umbrella, think of a giant umbrella, of God's sovereignty. And Satan and his minions can do nothing of their own will or power, but can only act as it is God's will. We see this in the opening verses of the book of Job, where Satan had to present himself to God. Now, I want to also make sure I don't minimize this, because demonic attacks, they are real, they are powerful, and they can be destructive. So we need God's help with them. But God's rule over this is meant to bring comfort to us because when we are attacked spiritually, and we will be attacked spiritually, we can rest that it can go no farther than God wills. We can also rest in the fact that the Bible tells us God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. So why can it go no further than God decrees? Because God restrains evil. That should be a comfort to us also. To the degree that he does or doesn't is the degree that a person's life will look to be more evil or not. This is why some are evil despots and some are just nice, kind, friendly neighbors, neither of which whom want anything to do with God. Inwardly, both being depraved, but outwardly manifesting different characteristics. So you might think of two crazed pit bulls living on opposite sides of the street. One runs freely in the front of the house, snarling, growling, the kind that looks like it wants to eat you alive, and the only thing that restrains it is the chain link fence that goes around the house. The other one on the other side, on a chain, it's got a muzzle on, and from all appearances, it looks cute and docile. If you have to choose a sidewalk to walk down, which one are you going to pick? Well, of course, the one that you think is the safest. But if that cute and harmless-looking dog had its muzzle and chain taken off, or should I say its restraint, it will act just like the other one, because that is what is in its heart. 
Only we would never see that or know that because it was restrained. And so in a sense, this is how God effects restraint on all evil. Some goes further and appears far worse. Some doesn't. And God is never guilty of the sin no matter how he directs men because it is their heart that causes them to act that way when they should refuse and they should turn from evil and temptation and instead do good. Again, the good news is that God not only directs it all for his glory, but rules over it. That means that nothing can touch us unless God says touch. And nothing can happen in this world against the will of God or against his people that isn't controlled by God. Again, that can be confusing. Listen to what Psalm 2 says on all the evil plans that the world thinks it's accomplishing versus what God's will is and his plan. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Such pride and hubris there. This is God's answer. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, which is ridicule or mockery. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Listen, we need to panic if God is in incomplete control because then there would be no use for hope. But if he does control it all, even if we don't understand it at times, we can rest that God is working all things for his glory and for our good. Because of this great truth, we must be very careful never to say we won't believe these truths simply because we can't understand how it all works. Or because of the truths of the Bible contradict what we, lear we learned up thinking about who God is or how he works. We can come to a deep understanding of the workings of God, but it doesn't come easily, and it takes time. There is a wealth of deep theological teaching at our disposal so we can delve deeply into who this God is that we serve. Of course, I would always recommend the teachings of the Puritans. These men spent their lives studying God and have written many books for our edification. That is one reason why they've been given to us. And this is why we not need to only study the Bible, but study those who have studied the Bible. God is greatly to be praised and worthy to be searched out and given much of our time to delve into the depths of who he is and of his majesty and glory. As we do this, there is great reward because we will grow greatly, not only in faith, but in peace and contentment as we come to realize who this God is. As I said, he wills, ordains, and decrees all things that happen. This means that God is the first cause of all things. That's a theological phrase, first cause. Or we might say the initiator or director of all things. He does use second causes, which would be means uh, for his will to be played out. Those second causes would, again, as I said, the heart of man and even spiritual beings, both good and bad. Because God wills, ordains, and decrees all things, we also need to be careful to never let God off the hook because he never lets himself off the hook. Now, what could I possibly mean by that? Well, when we look at 
evil in the world, we can sometimes say that God is allowing that to happen. Now, the Bible does use that language, so we can use it also. But we need to be clear what it means. When God allows something, it never means that he's just sitting back and watching with no control or direction over the event. Nor is he watching something play itself out and only intervenes if necessary. He wouldn't be in control if that were the case. We read in Ephesians 1 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All, not some or most. That means God also never reacts to anything, which would be the case if he were just sitting back and watching. Oh, I better do something now is not in God's vocabulary. It would be like us putting a cat and a dog in a room and allowing them to interact and seeing what would happen but having no control. That cannot be the case with God. And because we always want God's words to define our theology, I thought I would just give a couple of the many verses to support all this. There's so many about who God is and his sovereignty. Deuteronomy 13, 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. This means that all life is in God's hand. And not one life begins or ends but by God's decree. Job 14.5, his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You know what that means? It means that every one of us has an appointed limit to our life and nothing we can do can extend or shorten that. Again, that doesn't mean if we need to get our act together and get our lives together, we don't do that, right? We need to do that. The day, time, and way it will happen has all been predetermined by God. We cannot change it. You know what else it means? Here's some good news. If you're afraid to get on an airplane, that something bad might happen, take heart. Nothing can happen to it unless God says, happen. No flock of birds, no engine failure, or anything else can occur unless it's his will. We don't change the day we pass from this world to the next whether we decide to get on that plane or we stay at home. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll have absolute peace if you're afraid of flying, but you can maybe rest content. Funny for me, I I do not like heights anymore, but if you put me on a cylindrical metal tube flying 30,000 feet above the earth, I have no problem. I can't understand that one. But our days and times being determined and appointed also means there is no such thing as chance or luck. The great Charles Spurgeon said that the outcome of every roll of the dice or flip of the card is somehow predetermined by God. That in itself is enough to boggle our minds. But this echoes Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. A couple more verses, Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Pretty self-explanatory. Isaiah 14, 24, God plans and controls all things. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. This echoes 2 Kings 19, 25. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. Isaiah 30, 20 tells us it's the Lord who gives the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Jeremiah 24, God is the one who sends sword, famine, and pestilence. 
Sickness, Deuteronomy 28, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you extraordinary afflictions, severe and lasting, and sicknesses, grievous and lasting. And lastly, why is there war in Ukraine and the Middle East? Well, we know it is because of the evil that is in men's hearts. But they are second causes or the means God is using. As I said, God is always the first cause. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light. This is not me speaking. This is God. And create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. And in Amos chapter 3, verse 6, the prophet says, does disaster come to a city? unless the Lord has done it. There are many other verses like this. And even though God is the first cause and sends it, unless both sides repent and turn to Jesus, all will stand guilty before him one day. One side may win the war, but that is temporary, for there is no eternal hope for salvation outside of Jesus Christ, even for the good guys. Again, all these verses, seems like a lot, they're meant to give us hope peace, and contentment because all the chaos in the world is being guided and directed by God. That again means nothing is out of control, not even the hardships we face. Again, this is, never why, this is why we never let God off the hook, because he never does. That also means we can plead with God and pray for him to move in our lives and in the world. We should be doing that. He cares deeply for our temporal good, but his greatest desire is for our eternal good. One of our problems, is, though, is that we sometimes want more of the former than the latter. So as far as God's providence and sovereignty over all things, I think we see one of the greatest examples of this in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. I'm just going to cover it real quickly. I'm sure this story mirrors some of the trials some of us have gone through, even if not in degree to his. So God was going to save his people from a famine that he sent. In doing so... His plan was to send Joseph through all kinds of peril, trials, and temptations. What happened to Joseph was real, hard, and painful, but it is not just a story we read. It is also for us. At many points in the story, his life looked like it could be over. Have you ever felt that way? I think my life is going to be over, Lord. But it couldn't be because that was not God's plan. He, of course, couldn't see that at each point. Sometimes we can't, but nonetheless, it was the case. First, his brothers wanted to kill him, throw him into a pit, right? God wouldn't allow that, so let's just throw him into the pit instead. But wait, they had a better idea. We'll sell him as a slave. So they did that, and then they told his father that he was killed. But God was with Joseph, even if at times it didn't seem like it to him. Joseph was bought by a man named Potiphar. He was an officer of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Over time, God raised Joseph up, and he succeeded in all he did, and he was put in charge of all that Potiphar had. Now, Joseph might have been thinking at this point, you know, things maybe are not so bad after all. Ah, but then enter Potiphar's wife. She tried to seduce him, and when that didn't work, she falsely accused him of trying to attack her, and he was thrown in prison. I think we need to see here that prison 
as bad as it was, was in part God's way of protecting Joseph. And so for us, when something happens in our lives, we need to trust God and rest content that he might be doing something that we just don't know why for our own protection. Because God was with him, Joseph was given charge over the prisoners and was given the ability by God to interpret dreams. Now, that came in handy because Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was having some pretty bad dreams that Joseph was able to interpret. Pharaoh raised Joseph up again, second in command, because he saw that the Spirit of God was with him. Throughout his trials in life, Joseph was faithful and rested content in God's will, no matter what his circumstances looked like. We know the rest of the story. God sent the famine, and Joseph was reunited with all his family and saved them from the famine that was coming. Then he said this to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. That last sentence is for us from God. Do not fear. I will provide for you. Joseph went from a pit to prison to the second highest ranking person in all Egypt. It didn't happen overnight, though. It took years and was in God's timing. So what do we take out of this? We need to see that the trials and afflictions we have and we will have, we must be faithful and persevere in them and seek to be content in them because they may be around for a little while. Now, maybe they change quickly. Paul regularly tells us the same thing. Although we don't read it anywhere in this story, Joseph had concerns. Of course he had concerns. Maybe a lot of confusion as to the plan God had for him. Why am I still in prison, Lord, two years after? Remember that one guy said to remember me when you get released, and he never did? Well, you know what, Lord? I don't get it. I hate it. I wish it were changed. But Lord, I'll trust you. That is not discontentment. That is the cry of the heart to the Lord. And we never read of his complaining against God either or shaking his fist for his circumstances. And so there's something there for us too. Another thing we need to see here is that although God was with him, he never sat back and said, well, I guess this is it for me and then pitied himself for the rest of his days. No, he wasn't raised to status without taking some action. Before he interpreted the two prisoners' dreams in prison, he first saw, this is what the text tells us, he saw that they looked troubled and wanted to get involved and know why. He then continued to make wise decisions as he went up the ladder of prominence. He didn't squander what he had or cheat Pharaoh out of anything. He stayed the course all the while working for an evil leader, resting content in God's plan for him, awaiting the day that it would come to its final realization. What an encouragement that is for all of us as we wait for the day that God's plan for us will come to its final realization. What a day that will be. That's not going to happen tonight, I don't think so. Let me wrap up. <laughs> Paul finishes up the last part by thanking the Philippians 
encouraging them for the blessings and assures them that God will meet them in all their needs. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Just a mental note here, it is needs with an N and not greeds with a G. It is not wrong to ask for success, even great success. We see examples of that in the Bible who prayed for success, and some were given that by God. But it can't be the end all. If it's better for, in God's wisdom to keep us down here rather than here, it will be because he knows what is better for us. And sometimes I think he actually keeps us down here until we rest content, and then he will bless us more. But either way, will we rest content wherever he has us? Paul then mentions those of Caesar's household who send their greetings. Now, that is an interesting thing to say. Paul's in a Roman prison, and he sends greetings from Caesar's household. I think Paul wanted them to join with him in rejoicing that the message of the gospel cannot be bound. Whether in public or in jail, God is saving people. And guess what? In order to save someone in jail, God may send one of his children to jail to make that happen. Paul recognized his imprisonment not as a torture, but as a mission field. And in his boldness to proclaim the gospel wherever he was, he would not be silenced. As a result of his faithfulness, it appears that some, most notably within the imperial guard, had come to faith. How do we know this? Well, Paul is putting a bookend here on what he said back in verse 13 of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's in prison, remember, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, it is possible that some of Caesar's own household were converted, but most commentators believe that Caesar's household is a general statement rather than direct, but it is possible. That should give us confidence, too, that no leader in the world today is outside of God's reach, no matter how evil they look. And that's why we should be praying for them also, even the ones we don't like. You know who else that includes? This is going to be a tough pill. The terrorists we see on the news today. Their restraint by God has been so relaxed and removed that they can't but help to act the way they do because that's what's in their hearts. We may look at them with contempt, but let us never look so judgmentally without realizing that but for the grace of God, or maybe the restraint of God, in our lives before we came to faith, that each one of us was potentially capable of grievous atrocities in one way or another. And if any of them repent and turn to Jesus, he will forgive them. These are definitely some things to ponder. And if that's not more reason for us to praise God for saving us, I don't know what is. Oh, look at that. Just about an hour. Well, that's it for the book of Philippians. I can't think of any better way to close out tonight's teaching than how Paul closes out his letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.